Um, if anyone would like a Bible, the students have got some Bibles to hand out, so just raise your hand. So, reading from Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. It's such a joy uh, to see you, particularly if uh, you're normally an afternoon service person. Well done for getting up and getting here. Um, uh, please keep your Bibles open as we enjoy this psalm together. Let me, let me pray as we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us enough to have spoken to us in your word. Please help me to handle your word correctly now as I should. And please, by your grace and through the work of your spirit, give our hearts the ability to not only hear, but to be changed and to be excited as we hear your word now. It's for your son's sake that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. What is the Christian life meant to be like? What does it look like to worship God with your life? And why should you even want to? Some of us are here... And when we talk about worshipping God with our lives, we, we worry about whether we're really doing that. We want to, we'd like to, we're not sure we are. Some of us are here and we're quite weary of the effort of worshipping God and living the Christian life. We're tired of it. And some of us are here... And we're wondering what Christianity is all about. Perhaps we've grown up in the church, maybe we're new to these things, but we're wondering about why you would bother to give your life to worshipping God, whatever that looks like. Can I have the first slide, Emily? This psalm is going to show us what the Christian life is like, what worship really looks like. And I hope very much it's going to fuel our worship as we go through, so that you'll leave knowing what a worshipping life is and you'll leave wanting to worship God with your life. 
The structure of the psalm is basically a bit like a mountain. Uh, It's got a beginning and an end uh, that are sections that tell us how to worship. And then the high point, the peak of the mountain, is in the middle um, with the call to bow down in worship. And the peak is showing us who God is for us. So it's kind of the peak, which we'll get to, is who God is and who he is for us. And then either side of that, how do we respond to who he is in worship? So let's, if you like, start climbing the mountain. And our first point is from verses one to two. It's very simple. Um, Real worship looks like singing for joy to the Lord. Singing for joy to the Lord. Come, says the psalmist, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Next slide, Emily. Now, actually, we saw this two weeks ago, if you were here, in Psalm 135, and we saw this last week again in Psalm 100. It's, it's the same point on repeat. Now, the elders, when we uh, choose our psalms over the summer break, we all choose independently. We don't, we don't confer. And when I was reading Psalm 95, having listened to Jeeb's sermon from last week and Matthew's from the, sermon before, uh, from the week before, I did think, oh, goodness, I'm basically going to be saying the same thing for the first section. But then I thought, actually, that's not a mistake that we've happened to choose the Psalms like this. It's not a coincidence. The Holy Spirit seems to think that as a church, we need to hear that we are all called to a life of joy and that that life of joy is expressed through us singing God's praises together. Because there is a command in verse 1, isn't there? It doesn't come with caveats. It is a command to a joyful exuberance as we sing together. How does God want us to come before him as we gather together on a Sunday? He wants us to come before him singing and he wants us to come before him celebrating as we sing. I don't know what you were doing last Sunday afternoon. We were, of course, uh, watching the football, watching the Lionesses uh, win. Now, obviously, half of me was very, very happy about the victory and half of me was a bit sad, but I saw it as a win-win situation either way. It's the wonderful thing about dual nationality. Um, But it was wonderful to watch. And there was no doubt, was there, that the supporters in Wembley Stadium cared deeply about the result and were very happy about the result. And if you had dropped somebody in to Wembley Stadium who had no idea what was going on and never come across football, but you dropped them in and you'd said, just look around, do these people care about what's going on? Does the action of what's going on in the pitch, does it move these people? As they'd looked around that stadium... It would have been a very easy answer for them, wouldn't it? Yes. Yes. I don't know what's going on here, but I can see that it really matters to these people by the way that they're singing, by the way that they're celebrating. Now, Psalm 95 moves us to ask the question, if somebody dropped into our church who had never been to church before and they stood next to you or they stood next to me and somebody said, look around, do these people care as they sing? Is whatever it is that's going on in this church moving these people? Would they look around and say yes? Or would they look around and say it doesn't really seem to matter that much? 
Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. It's a command without caveats. Now, some of us are more expressive than others. Of course we are. But the point is that we should each be at our most expressive when together we are singing to God and singing about God. Now, the culture we come from, and it's wonderful to have so many different cultures in this church, the culture that we come from will affect how we show our hearts being moved as we sing. Our characters will affect it too, of course. Some of us are much more heart on our sleeve kind of people. Some of us are heart very much staying behind our ribs kind of people. And that's, both of those are fine. And of course, our circumstances will affect this as well. If you've come in off the back of a great week, it might be easier to sing with joy than if you've come in off the back of a really difficult week. But actually, there are people in this church who I know have a tough week every week. And yet when they stand and they sing, you can see the joy written all over their faces. There are people who, when I'm leading, and I can see from the front as we sing, I can see them crying and smiling at the same time as we sing. By the way, if that's you, you are the greatest encouragement to me. Thank you. My encouragement to you is to make sure that you are at your most expressive when you're singing praises to God in church. And if you're the kind of person who really struggles with that and your dial is normally turned down to zero, don't try to get to ten all at once. But why not try and get it turned up to two or three as you think about the words so that if somebody was sitting next to you who had come to church for the first time, they would look at you and say, I have no idea what the gospel that they're talking about is yet, but it clearly makes a difference to them. I can tell from how they sing. Um, I don't know if you've been reading the blogs uh, that have been coming out each week. Um, If you haven't, uh, do catch up on them. They are super encouraging. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Joe. Joe Turner wrote one this week, and uh, I asked her if I could quote something from the blog because it, it summed up what I'm trying to say much better than I can. Joe was talking about last year when she was struggling uh, uh, deeply with chronic anxiety, and she had a song, a Christian song that she hung on to, and she, she says this, it would play on repeat in my mind throughout the day, reminding me over and over again of the treasures I have in Christ, whatever my circumstances. Whilst it didn't remove the anxiety, it was invaluable in redirecting my gaze and filling my heart with joy, even despite the pain of the present. This, she says, is the power of hymns and songs. And speaking these things to each other supremely on a Sunday morning, I think, or afternoon, is a wonderful way of encouraging one another and pointing each other to the things of God. So I want to encourage you to take verse 1 seriously. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. On good Sundays, when you feel like it, sing to give voice to your heart's joy. You have permission to be exuberant. Actually, the rest of us need you to be exuberant. It encourages us. And on difficult Sundays, when you really don't feel it, sing your heart into joy. And ask God as you do that to use your singing to sing you into joy. You have permission to struggle. We all do. But none of us have permission to give up on joy. And singing is a gift of God to move us into joy. And the rest of us will be super encouraged to see you singing yourself into joy. Because this is a command. 
It's no less of a command than the command to pray or to keep meeting together or to share the gospel or to give generously. So without needing to change our personalities, maybe perhaps we do need to just turn the dial up and notch your tea. Because real worship, Psalm 95 says, it looks like singing for joy to the Lord about the Lord. Now, the wonderful thing about God's word, one of the wonderful things about God's word, is that he he rarely gives us a command without a motivation. He rarely tells us to do something without giving us a wonderful truth about him that will move us from knowing that we ought to obey that command to wanting to obey that command in response to who he is. And we reach that motivation for singing with joy, (coughs) excuse me, as we reach, if you like, the peak of this psalm. This is the place that we stand and look at the command to sing joyfully and look at the command that's going to come towards the end of the psalm. And it's verses three to seven. So let's move there. Do keep your Bibles open while I have a drink. (coughs) Verses four and five. The depths and the heights, the seas, Verse 5, and the land, they are all in the hands of the one that we were singing to earlier and will sing to again as we reach the end of our service. They're all in his hands. Just think for a moment of the most stunning vista you've ever seen. Maybe it's a range of mountains. Maybe it's a gorgeous beach. Maybe it's a jungle. I don't care. Think of it. Think of a time that you've stood on the edge of the sea and just looked out over that vast expanse. And it's probably made you feel quite small. Well, all of that is in the Lord's hands. It's a bit like if you make a a Lego model. This is what you get, by the way, if you ask an eight-year-old to make a, an eight-year-old girl to make a Lego model at speed on a Sunday morning. But I can just hold it in my hand. That's how God holds everything that we ever see in this world. To God, that sea is like a Lego model to you or to me. That's the God who we talk about. That's the God who we love. That's the God who we sing to. And yet that's the God who is also personally acquainted with each of us. Because that's what verse 6 and 7 come on to tell us. And you can only really appreciate the amazing magnitude of what it's saying in verse 7 if you've understood that this is the God who made the seas and the mountains. Verse 7, for he is our God, our God. He knows us, we know him. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. If you know God personally you can say the Lord is my shepherd not our shepherd only but your individual personal loving caring shepherd who is leading you to pasture now sheep next slide please animal uh, Emily sheep are pretty simple animals I don't know if you could be compared to any animal, what you go for. It probably wouldn't be a sheep. That's the animal that scripture compares you to over and over again because sheep are simple animals. They want to be safe and they want to eat grass. 
If they're safe and they're eating grass, then they are happy. They are at rest. They are satisfied. And so a good shepherd is a shepherd that keeps his sheep safe and who leads them safely to pasture. And so if you're a sheep, and I haven't actually spoken to any sheep, but it strikes me from wandering around the Lake District that this is what sheep are like. If you're a sheep, what matters far more than your own competence or your own courage or your own character is the competence, the courage and the character of your shepherd. Because a strong sheep who has a rubbish shepherd is very soon going to be a dead sheep. However, a weak sheep who has a good shepherd is always going to be a happy sheep. Because sheep are good at only really good at wandering off and getting themselves into trouble. All sheep need a shepherd. And it doesn't matter what kind of sheep you are at the end of the day, if you have a good shepherd, you'll be okay. You and I are sheep. Verse 7, we are the flock under his care. It doesn't matter how weak you are. It doesn't matter how much you're struggling. It doesn't matter what lies in your past or what lies ahead of you. You have a shepherd, a really, really good shepherd. And he is leading you to pasture. He is leading you to eternal life. G last week pointed us to John 10. Of course, whenever we read about God being a a shepherd in the Old Testament, it should make our minds leap forward to when the Lord Jesus spoke of himself as the good shepherd in John 10. Let me read you what Jesus says about himself as this good shepherd who we meet in Psalm 95. He says, I have come that they, that is my people, my sheep, may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's what he did to keep you safe. I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Brothers, sisters, the hands that made the lands and the seas are the hands that were pierced for you. The one who formed you died for you to keep you safe. The one who holds the depths in his hand is holding you in his hand. He is leading you. He is carrying you towards pasture, towards rest, towards heaven. You have a shepherd. And those are four words that transform our lives to the extent that we remember them and believe them and live by them. You have a shepherd. And there may be no other reason for joy in your life right now. And I know as I look out, I can look at people who I know are going through the depths. There may be no other reason for joy in your life right now. But there will always be joy for you in that. That the one who holds the heights and the depths of this world in his hands is your shepherd who loves you so much 
that he came and died for you, who loves you so much that whenever you wander off, he will come follow you and bring you back. You see, a sheep who knows that he has a good shepherd is a joyful sheep, no matter what else is going on. And, and this brings us on back down the mountain, as it were, and a sheep who knows its shepherd is good is going to be a following sheep as well. As Jesus put it, my sheep listen to my voice and they follow me. And that's what the psalmist is coming on to uh, down in verses 7 to 11. We worship God by singing out for joy together. And we worship God by obeying our Lord's voice. Because Psalm uh, 95 verses, uh, uh, back end of seven down to the end, they're actually a warning for those of us who are in church. And since you're in church, by definition, given that you're hearing me, uh, it's a warning for you and for me. Because it's warning us that hearing God speak is not sufficient. Simply being in church and hearing the Bible read and preached is not what makes one a Christian, is not what worship looks like. Because whenever we hear the word of God, something happens to our heart. It either receives the word of God or it rejects the word of God. But it will do one of those two things. In a sense, we never leave church unchanged. We leave it receiving the word or rejecting the word. We leave it trusting God or we leave it testing God. And that's where the psalmist points the people back, uh, his hearers, back to in in verses 8 and 9 and 10. He's pointing back to the wilderness years, the years after God had rescued his people from Egypt, but before they reached the promised land, uh, back in the book of Exodus. And right after God had parted the Red Seas, at the Red Sea, and brought his people through, and right after they'd stood on the eastern shore and sung a song full of joy and praise, because of what God had done, right after that, they reached a place that became known as Meribah, and there was no water there. Now, you would think that the people would have said, well, we've just seen God part a sea. I'm pretty sure he will be able to provide us with some water to drink. But they didn't. They didn't say that to themselves. They didn't trust God. Instead, they argued with God by making demands of God. And they started to say, look, is is the Lord among us or not? We're in this place with no water. I mean, is God even here? Is God even good? And they started to say, maybe we should, uh, should go back to Egypt, actually. I think it was, uh, it was better there. We had cucumbers, they started to say to themselves. We had slavery, yes, but we did have cucumbers. It's madness, isn't it? But that's what they started to do. They started to test God instead of trust God. As soon as they couldn't work out what he was doing in their lives, they wouldn't trust him. Instead, they tested him. If God were really worth worshipping, they started to say to each other, surely he'd be doing things our way, according to our agenda and our timetable and according to what we say is good. And what is terrible about this is verse 9. The psalmist reminds us that God said, they tried me though they had seen what I did. God had shown himself to be good, to be powerful, to be kind, to be their shepherd. They should have remembered it. That should have trumped everything that they saw around them in their thirst. 
that they didn't remember. And so, verse 10, their refusal to obey when they heard revealed that, as God puts it, they have not known my ways. In other words, yes, they'd seen his power. Yes, they'd seen his goodness. Yes, they'd heard him speak. But they proved not really to be his at all. And that's quite sobering, isn't it? That you can hear God and yet not really know him. You can know your Bible and not really be his. Because, as Jesus puts it, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. A sheep follows its shepherd. The shepherd is under no obligation at all to consult with the sheep before making a decision, to take their advice before setting the route, to submit the way forward to a majority verdict of the flock. No, the shepherd leads and the sheep follow. And if you know you've got a good shepherd, you can follow him even when you don't understand the way. So the test of whether these people truly trusted God came when their way of doing things and God's way of doing things differed. That was the moment of test. Would they obey him and follow his lead or would they not? And the answer in these people's case was not. And so they proved not to be his. And so verse 11, God says, they will not enter my rest. They will not reach the promised land. They won't get to the good pasture. Obedience is not the grounds of our salvation. We do not earn salvation by obeying. Obedience is not the grounds of our salvation, but it is the evidence of our salvation, just like singing with joy is. The uh, Friday before last, uh, Ben and I went to the uh, Commonwealth Games Rugby Sevens um, up in Coventry. And... uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Rugby Sevens. The games are short, so you get lots and lots of different games. And about halfway through, all, all the favourite teams had smashed all the not-so-favourite teams, and it was getting a bit one-sided. And, and then Australia played Uganda. Right? Now, if you know anything about rugby... Have we got any Aussies here? No, good. If you know anything about, if you know anything about, uh, about rugby, you will know that Australia, very good at rugby. Uganda, not well-known for their rugby pedigree, shall we say. Anyway, it got to the second half... And Uganda were still within a score of Australia. And they were playing really well. And the Aussies were clearly getting quite frustrated. And uh, they were trying to just um, play blind passes and stuff. And it wasn't working. And the crowd were loving it, partly because it was Australia, to be honest. But mainly because Uganda were playing so well. And so you had about 15,000 people just screaming, Uganda, Uganda. And like Ben and I became honorary Ugandans. And I was texting a friend who's a missionary in Uganda saying, you never believe it, what's happening, Leo? Anyway, it was great. And, and Uganda ended up drawing against Australia. And the whole stadium went mad. And there were like three real Ugandans sitting just behind us. They were in tears. The rest of us were just loving it. And we basically became Ugandans for the evening. If you'd looked at me then and said, does this guy care about Uganda? Is he moved by Ugandan rugby? You would have said, yes, yes, that man really cares. What about last Tuesday? If you'd looked at me then and said, is there anything in this man's life that suggests that he cares about Uganda? Uh, No. I cared in the moment, but the real test about how much I really care about Ugandan rugby was not in the stadium, really, or not just in the stadium. It was a few days later. Well, it's the same for us. 
Real worship does not look like less than singing with joy to the Lord on a Sunday when we're together. But it does also look like more than that. It is singing with joy on a Sunday when we're together and it is obeying the Lord on a Tuesday morning or a Thursday evening or whatever it may be. Today, the psalmist says, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. When we hear God speak to us, it is ours to obey. And yet we're very good at not doing that, aren't we? I don't know what your tactics are. Mine are to delay. So I hear a clear command from God and I think I must start doing that in my life. But but not today. I'll get on with that when I'm less busy, when I'm less tired, when life's a bit easier. We excuse ourselves. I'm not particularly good at doing that. I'm glad that others are doing that. But that's not for me. Or we downgrade. I know I'm called to give sacrificially, but how about just giving? I know I'm called to share the gospel with all I can, but how about just the one person that it's a bit easier with because they're already interested? And so we downgrade what God is really calling us into. If you hear his voice, says Psalm 95, obey. My sheep, says Jesus, hear my voice and follow me. So you'll hear God speak to you this week if you're reading your Bible. You'll hear God speak to you through his spirit as he nudges you as you go about your day. Could you speak a bit gentler to that person, do you think? Could you share the gospel with that person, do you think? Could you give some of your time to get alongside, to sit next to that homeless person as you rush by? Do you think you'll hear his spirit nudging you? And as Alistair Begg, the pastor, puts it, at that point... Your heart will either be like welcoming soil to God's word or it will be a tin roof off which God's word bounces. The key to obedience is what happens in your heart when it hears God's word. And behind our disobedience is always a heart that has forgotten who God is and how good God is. And so if you like, as we finish, we need to go back up the mountain Because verse 7 is the key to you and I obeying God this week. Because remember, the sheep who knows its shepherd is good is a joyful sheep and also an obedient sheep. It's because of who we are following that we can smile even as we obey, even when the obedience comes at a cost or requires a risk or we don't understand why God would say that. So let me encourage you this morning, obey. Is there some sin in your life that you know it's wrong and maybe nobody else knows about it? For some of us, there will be. And right there, you have an opportunity to remember the goodness of your shepherd and follow him by asking him for forgiveness by asking his Holy Spirit to change you and getting on with obeying him. Next week could be very different than last week for you. Don't delay. Maybe, on the other hand, there's a costly decision that you are being called to make that will make your life harder or poorer, but you know it's what God is calling you into. There's an opportunity for you to remember the goodness of your shepherd and follow him. Maybe you have an ongoing heart issue of unforgiveness or grumbling or bitterness or envy or anger 
there is an opportunity for you to hear God's word, remember the goodness of your shepherd and follow him. Because the Christian life, the life of real worship, is a life of two things, joy and obedience. Christopher Ash, the um, Bible teacher, sums it up like this. True worship expressed corporately in joyful song and humble prayer is marked by an eager attentiveness to the word of God and a careful obedience to that word from the heart. Obedience without joy is actually not worship. Joy without obedience is not worship. Joyful obedience. That's the way that we follow our shepherd. And so as we sing now, and we're going to sing uh, after I've sat down, we're going to sing three songs back to back. And that's an opportunity for you to sing out your joy as you reflect on the goodness of your shepherd. Or it's an opportunity for you to sing yourself into joy by focusing on those truths. And maybe as you do so, imagine there is somebody standing next to you who'd never been to Grace Church before. What would they know about the gospel from looking at your response to it as we sing? And then as we head out, let's obey. Today. No excuses, no half measures, no delays. But let's make sure that we don't do it because we ought to. Let's obey because we want to. Because we have a shepherd. Why not this week say verse 7 to yourself every day? He is my God. I am part of the people of his pasture. The flock under his care. You have a shepherd. And that is the way to sing with joy. And that is the way to obey with joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the good shepherd. We thank you that as our good shepherd, you came and died to make us safe, to win us forgiveness, to draw us out of the clutches of Satan, so that we might enjoy the perfect pasture of a perfect world in the presence of our good shepherd forever. We praise you that we have a shepherd and we acknowledge that as your sheep, we are prone to wander. We acknowledge that we do not come to you as the source of joy, that we are quick to grumble and we are slow to feel the glory of having you as our shepherd. And we acknowledge that we are quick to disobey, that we are prone to go our own way and we're sorry. And we thank you that you always call us back. You know our hearts, Lord Jesus, by your spirit. Show those hearts your goodness. So that we would praise you now. With joy. And so that we would obey you tomorrow. With that same joy. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing.